AVXL episode 188 was recorded on July 21st, 2022. Judder versus Stutter, Bluetooth LE. How do you find somebody to calibrate your new TV? 4K and Dolby Atmos, new in-wall speakers from Monolith. Should you wait before calibrating a laser projector? And quite a bit more. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you a lot. For everyone. To everyone of you that support us at patreon.com slash avxl your monthly contributions make this podcast possible well avxl i'm patrick norton hey i am robert heron and we have an interesting subject to start the show with today totally stutter stutter indeed a little Three, two pull downs. Digital oh. versus analog. The fate of the Furies. The Norns. Wait, sorry. Truly. Uh, getting into mythology there. And Judder, Stutter, and 3 2 pull down are not mythology. These are legit things. What, what got you started on this? I thought we were done with Stutter and Judder and 3 2 pull down. <laughs> Kinda. Well, I mean, we're never done with 3 2. I'm going to stop now. Uh. Save me. Save me, Robert. I had somebody ping me this week asking about uh, a replacement for their current TV, which was a pretty standard old school LCD panel that ran at a 60 hertz refresh rate. And their concern mostly was that they wanted something, a newer TV that would handle video stutter as good as their current TV did. And they were asking me for input related to like, what should I look for? what's out there and kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of the difference between a stutter artifact in video versus what we call judder, an artifact caused by an inconsistent frame time. The classic example is doing conversions from 24 frames per second, your classic film or cinema frame rate to 30 frames per second, which is what most old school broadcast standard TVs are looking for. And you could think of it as converting four original frames of film into or video into five and it's that that conversion process requires that you end up usually with a couple of frames that are blended from different points in time and these are often referred to as quote-unquote dirty frames now modern (laughs) i love that term actually modern techniques have reduced this artifact down to a single frame or they're even incorporating machine learning techniques to generate virtual frames but either way you're ending up with something that can look a little jumpy occasionally. Right. Modern TVs have become really good at detecting video with judder in them and removing it. And it's made even easier when you're dealing with something like a 24 frame per second uh, source material and you're displaying it on a TV that has a multiple of that as its refresh rate. In particular, mm-hmm. old school 48 hertz displays. 120 hertz displays or even 240 hertz displays in that case ever so rare 240 hertz display yeah gamers would say hey (laughs) right i can do that but anyway in that case though the display can repeat each of those 24p frames uh two five or ten times in the case of the examples i just gave and in case you're wondering where 24 frames per second came from that's the standard speed of the frames that go by in a traditional cinematic environment, right? 24 frames per second, which is great. But 24 frames do not go equally into 30. They do not go equally into 60 frames. And you need 60 frames to not have, you know, a giant black spot 
<laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, for part of every second. You take an analog, you scan it, you got to convert it into a digital format. Things get more complicated. Now, of course, if you actually tried to watch a movie that it was recorded at 24 frames per second on a 24 hertz screen, that would induce a bunch of flicker. You would clearly see things happening that would just be a total distraction from the actual presentation. So the way they get around that is to actually flash each frame, say, two, three, or four times to increase the effective refresh rate. So you're not seeing a flickery display when you're sitting in the theater, even though that was originally recorded at 24 frames per second. Anyway, on the other hand is a stutter artifact, and that artifact is related to the response time of the display, or how quickly it can actually change its pixel from one state to another, and the video's frame rate. And the worst case scenario is when you have slower frame rate video, like 24p, and a display with a very fast pixel response time. Each frame ends up being displayed for longer. There's less transition time, and that hold of when it's sitting there makes the stutter artifacts more pronounced. If you're seeing stutter, if something you know looks bizarre, I mean, how does it? What's the worst case? I know panning shots are probably when stutter shows up the worst when when individual frames are held too long. What's it look like? You know, what do you see when you're when you're looking at a screen that has stutter issues? It's a jumping artifact, literally. It looks like it's almost a strobing effect as it pans across, where it's just not as smooth as it would be if you're a gamer, in a sense, when you're dealing with a very high refresh rate or a very high frame rate of oh, the game. Right. So everything becomes very fluid and more realistic. Okay, I'm seeing this. I want to fix this. What am I looking for inside the control panel on my television? Many TVs have separate motion controls for judder and blur artifacts, and depending on the implementation, those controls may interact or overlap. For a long time, the default for Samsung TVs was to bump up that smoothing control a little bit, maybe to 3 out of 10, and that would be a nice balance between maintaining that filmic look, that 24 frame per second content, and keeping it looking that way without as much stuttering related to those slow panning shots in particular. And in the case of a TV like my OLED, which has an incredibly fast pixel response time, I find it's better to enable a little bit of that, but not too much. Because almost everyone, at least, hates the soap opera effect, where you're making something that should have that filmic quality <laughs> look like a soap opera, or it's filmed at a very high refresh rate, or a very high frame rate, in a sense. So don't be afraid to actually take advantage of those controls and enable them a little bit, experiment with them, and it will help you get rid of something like a stutter artifact in those slow panning shots that may be pulling you out of the content and you're suddenly focused more on the artifact than it is the material itself. It, those controls are there for a reason. In an ideal world or for a video purist, they would say, oh, heck no, I'm turning all this off and I'm going to make sure that my display's refresh rate is an actual multiple of 24, like I mentioned before, and just live with it the way it looks. I still find, especially on those fast pixel response TVs, like OLEDs in particular, that that stutter artifact really plays a significant influence on just about everything you look at. And it's nice just to tone that down just a little bit. And that's what those controls are for. Remember, if you start playing around with judder or stutter or whatever they call it inside the control panel of your television, if you, you know, well, I'm just going to say it. If you screw things up, if you've made everything terrible, you can always reset your settings and go back in and start over. Uh, reset the factory is your friend. Very, very um, true. Or at least it's my friend. Where <laughs> you're just like, what have I done? 
Um, also, I will say the best thing about cell phone cameras is being able to take a snap as a before picture before you start tweaking the settings inside of there. So at least you know where you started at. Oh, indeed. Knowing how to reset a display is critical. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> can help a lot. We got another interesting question this week. Uh, and it comes down to this. Do you need a 4K TV for Atmos? And Rob and I were talking about this. And on one hand, it's like, what? And then on the other hand, there's so many different specs right now. Things get confusing, right? And generally speaking, you're not going to be able to buy, for example, an, an Atmos-ready AVR that's not 4K ready. And a matter of fact, most of the higher-end AVRs now are actually already 8K ready or whatever they consider 8K ready, given that there's almost no 8K televisions out there. It's an interesting question, right? If somebody's like, oh, well, I, I really want to add Atmos overhead speakers and have that you know, phenomenal surround experience, but I don't, I don't want to buy a new television. And I get that, right? If you right. spent thousands of dollars on a projector or a television a couple, you know, three, four years ago, and it's perfectly adequate, I can totally see people being like, uh, okay, so one, your AVR is going to be backwards compatible with 1080p and 720p and a whole bunch of stuff we really don't want you watching, but we understand if you are, right? So that your, your 4K or even your 8K AVR should have no issues dealing with your 1080p television. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, you will need 4K. In most cases, Atmos is going to be tied in. It depends on the box and the service and whatever. But, you know, you are essentially going to need, you know, a Blu-ray player or an HD player, or you're going to need the appropriate level of Roku or Apple TV or Android device that supports Atmos. Right. And that's all software, right? Because it's all feeding it out over HDMI. But, you know, you want to make sure, you know, if you can't get Atmos running, it might be that your, you know, your aging Apple TV or Roku box doesn't support it. It's funny, right? Because I've been forcing myself to upgrade to these new boxes. So I'm going to have to like dig into the storage unit, see if I can find an old Roku and see what happens if I try to stream Atmos off of an older Roku. And I apologize for not knowing the answer to that already. It's that duality of, do you want to use your TV as the hub for everything? And in that case, or or the AVR for that matter, say an Atmos-enabled AVR, one or the other. And if you're going to try to do it with the TV, you probably do want to upgrade that display. Uh, however, it's not as cut and dry as I thought it might be. And if you have an Atmos-enabled AVR, you probably should connect all of your devices to that have it do the decoding for your Atmos sources when available. That way, the AVR can then send the video feed out to the TV or projector, and you don't have to worry about either one, uh, in a sense. It's like the audio is being taken care of by the AVR, and the TV is just going to receive whatever it receives, be it HDR or not, uh, if you have an older TV, say. Now, if you did want to use that TV as the hub for your connected devices, you would need ARC if you're feeding this back to an AVR, and eARC would probably be the best. Some Atmos content, and this is really where it kind of got confusing for mm -hmm. me at first, some Atmos content is streamed using the Dolby Digital Plus codec that would allow for an ARC-enabled TV to feed that signal back to a compatible AVR. And there is some backward compatibility in that Atmos Dolby Digital Plus format for non-Atmos speaker systems or AVRs, it could actually pull out just a regular Dolby Digital 5.1 from that signal. I'm curious if anyone is actually using the regular ARC, not eARC, for Atmos decoding on an AVR. Mm. I, I doubt it, 
but I'm sure somebody out there has tried it, and I'd be curious to know if you've had success. It sounds like it should work, but if you're dealing with an Atmos source material that was encoded using the Dolby True HD codec, a, a lossless format, you would definitely need the additional bandwidth of an eARC display in order to have the TV act as that hub. And that was really the, the main thing. Uh, the person I was talking to had, uh, I believe, a 7.1 Atmos setup already or, uh, you know, a decent AVR that's Atmos compatible with a decent speaker setup already. And I was like, well, you can put whatever display you want with that. And the audio is just being handled by the AVR and you don't really have to worry about it. You're kind of in the best of all worlds in a sense. Take your time on t in terms of your display upgrade. You've got the Atmos audio experience rolling already. <laughs> but if that's not the case, yeah, it, it just becomes more tricky. If you're dealing with an older TV that supports ARC, plain old ARC, and right. what that source is for that Atmos feed, is it actually Dolby Digital Plus or is it something more advanced or lossless like being encoded with Dolby True HD. And that's kind of where it goes back and forth. Do you need a 4K TV for Atmos? It does depend. And it depends on basically how you're connecting everything. And if you're right. using that AVR as the hub for all of your devices and sources, assuming you have the appropriate subscriptions or discs with that sure. ready to go, no, you can do whatever you want at that point. Yeah, and, and keep everything nice and separate. You think about everyone who's using projectors. They're enjoying Atmos if they want, and they're usually using an AVR to do that, and then just feeding the video out to the projector in whatever compatible format the projector supports. It keeps things separate when you do it that way. So... Just so everybody knows, according to the information I have here, Dolby Atmos support was added in tvOS 12 on starting with the Apple TV 4K, the first generation. Atmos support on Roku's is kind of all over the map. And I say all over the map because, for example, a, uh, according to the chart, Dolby Atmos is not supported in the Roku Ultra LT, but it is supported in the Roku Ultra um, the Roku Streaming Stick 4K+, Plus, the Roku Streaming Stick 4K all support Atmos. The Roku Stream Bar does not support Atmos. The Roku Express 4K+, Plus does not support Atmos. The Roku Express 4K does not support Atmos. The Roku Ultra does support Atmos. The Roku Streaming Stick+, Plus, the Roku Express SE, LE, Express+, Plus, the Premiere, the Roku Ultra earlier yeah this is yeah. in any case the part that was confusing for me was just that what form of atmos are we talking about is it the dolby digital oh, plus wow. version in terms of the codec being used or is it the dolby true hd version in terms of the codec being used i don't even know how you would determine that without some sort of hardware to tell you uh from your typical sources on say like a 4k ultra high def blu-ray it's typically right. that dolby true hd file is going to be there that can be up to close to 20 megabits of data per second that's a nice beefy audio piece of a uh, content there that was the question i had if it is in fact atmos encoded using dolby digital plus it technically right. should work through an arc enabled tv not eARC. eARC shouldn't be required but i haven't actually tested that i am again i'm just kind of curious if anyone actually has uh I've dealt with enough disc material to know that I'm not bothering with that, trying to do that on an older TV through an arc port. <laughs> I know that won't work. Right. Or it's going to downsample it somehow. But either way, I would like to learn more about, like, does, in fact, say, like, Netflix actually offer Atmos with Dolby True HD? 
I kind of doubt it. That's just, uh, even in the 4K tier, that just sounds like it's an extra bit of data they'd have to, you could be sending up to, like I said, almost 20 megabit of just audio information in that signal. And that's a lot. That's a lot of bits. And I'm just curious, is all streaming in Atmos done in Dolby Digital Plus? This is the question I will answer for next week. (laughs) Is anybody actually streaming in Dolby True HD in terms of the Atmos format? Dolby Digital Plus. Ah, ha, 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 ha. High quality audio is available on all titles supporting 5.1 surround or Dolby Atmos. Titles that have a 5.1 surround sound available will display either a Dolby Digital Plus icon or a 5.1 icon next to their description. Titles that have Dolby Atmos available will display a Dolby Atmos icon next to their description. That's about as deep as they get in the Netflix pages. Yeah. I'm assuming they do not do do true HD. That would be prohibitively bandwidth consumage. Hey. Prohibitive. That would, that, would just, that would suck a lot of bits, I think. If anybody's going to offer it, I would bet Sony's streaming service, I forget what it's called off the top of my head, it's built into Sony TVs. I'm willing to bet with the bit rates they're pushing with their, which is typically 80 or 90 megabit in some cases, they're probably using Dolby True HD. But that would be one differentiator between these streaming providers who are offering Atmos is well, to say, hey, we are actually offering a tier with True HD, or, or it's all just Dolby Digital Plus to save the, uh, to save the expense. And if that is the case, then it's just another good reminder that your disc-based 4K content is going to offer the absolute best audio quality, no matter what, hmm. uh, compared to any of these streaming services. So if that's important to you, something to keep in mind. I got something for you, Kaleidoscape. Delivers oh. a bit-for-bit identical copy of the Studio Master Audio and Lossless Dolby Atmos or DTSX. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I'm literally ripping a Blu-ray quality or a 4K ultra high-def quality disc, then that's going to incorporate the best of all worlds. Or I'm buying it through Kaleidoscape in a quote-unquote pre-ripped <laughs> format. Anyway, that's just something that it was a good question. I just thought you'd like that. If yeah. you have an AVR, you don't have to worry about what kind of display you're connecting to it. You're you're going to get whatever the best audio quality you can get out of your particular products when they're connected to that AVR. If you're dealing right. with an older TV and you're connecting every one of your source devices to the TV and expecting its old ARC port to be able to feed your AVR, that's where you can get into some oddness. Or you may not be getting the best quality possible. This is a good time for us to give a shout out to everybody listening and to say, if you have this running, if it has created problems, if it has been easier than we make it sound, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton or at Robert Heron, because there's thousands of you and there's two of us and (laughs) together we can answer all the questions, I swear, or at least we can try. We can do Uh, it. We can do it. We can try real hard, damn it. Um, I know I can. I think I can. I think I, I knew I can. I, I'm not going to get all little engine that good on y'all. I apologize. There were small children in the house recently uh, that were not mine. So they were young enough to justify getting all the cool kids books that have been in storage out. Sort of like, you know, trialing grandchildren, but without grandchildren. And now I'm thinking about teenage pregnancy. So let's move on to monolith. <laughs> Let's just cut that whole segue out. That whole sad, terrible, whatever that was. Monolith, that's uh, Monoprice's in-house premium brand. I own two of their subwoofers. They make some fantastic amplifiers. One of their headphones is one of my favorite headphones ever. 
uh, and quite reasonably priced. So they've had a pair of THX certified in-wall speakers to their offerings. The Monolith THX-275IW is THX certified select. That means it's good for a uh, medium-sized room up to 2,000 cubic feet in size. In theory, you're sitting about 10 feet from the screen. Those are going to sell for $349.99 each. And for that $349.99, you get a 6.5-inch uh, high excursion woofer, a 50-millimeter silk dome mid-range driver, and a 25-millimeter silk dome tweeter, and an impressively flat frequency response. I'm thinking it's got to be plus or minus 3, maybe 4 dB from 100 hertz, a little below 100 hertz, all the way up to about 15,000 hertz. It's remarkably flat looking. Nice. Um, yeah. And then uh, a fairly similar response, but a little bit higher. It looks pretty flat from probably 190, 80, 70, let's call it 80 hertz, all the way up to like 20,000 hertz for the larger speaker, which is known as the... THX-465IW, and that's certified ultra. And uh, ultra means that is good for uh, a 3,000 cubic foot room. Uh, so you're sitting probably 12 feet from the screen if you look at the THX certified information. Um, what makes this is a much significantly bigger speaker, significantly more expensive. It's going to be about $700 each. And uh, it's got three additional 6.5-inch uh High excursion woofers on that, so Holy you're not going to be going a lot deeper, but it should be hitting you a little bit harder um, when you're looking at the numbers on that. So yeah, it's uh, just under ninety. Looks about eighty-eight, ninety dB efficient on the uh, two seventy-five and the four sixty-five is looking like just about the same. Looking at the charts there. Still pretty case, cool for uh, an in-wall speaker. To see an in-wall speaker with a relatively flat frequency response is always a delight. They're saying, so plus or minus 3 dB, 37 hertz to 20,000 hertz for the THX465. And their specs for the 275IW put that uh, 3 dB, plus or minus 3 dB number from 43 hertz to 20,000 hertz. And uh, these are four ohm speakers, so you are going to need a healthy amplifier to drive them. That is nice, though, in terms of the frequency response. That's actually getting down yeah. to some decent bass compared to... Yeah. I mean, I would immediately assume you're going to pair these with a sub, but I got to say, at least for the certified Ultra with its four-speaker design, right. or four-woofer design, they're actually <laughs> putting out a little, a little more in the low end, which is good to see. Yeah. Maybe not as low as some people would want, and in that case, you can always add that sub, but still, that's uh, better than most things I see in terms of the in-wall yes. designs. True that. And if you start wanting to nerd out on THX certification or you want to learn more, uh, THX.com is the website. When they're looking at this, they do a whole ba a battery of tests, scientifically formulated tests. Um, axial frequency response, output versus distortion, vertical and horizontal dispersion. The idea is that you can, you know, essentially this speaker will play loud enough with appropriate amplification to fill a room of this size, right? So select an ultra or the two mid sizes. Compact uh, is for smaller rooms, say 1,000 cubic feet inside. And Dominus, which is the newest of the THX certification levels, 
uh, for expansive home theater spaces up to 6,500 cubic feet in size with a 20-foot viewing distance from the screen. Or in the case of my home theater in my basement, I need to, you know, I have a, probably a 7,000 cubic foot room, but we're sitting like eight feet from the screen because the home theater only takes up one corner of this giant room we have to fill with to base. Pretty flexible then for a room that big in terms of your speaker selection. Yeah. I, I still, even Thank for the uh, certified select, the $350 speaker, yeah. that even gets down to the the lowish 40 hertz levels for bass. Yeah. That's still pretty impressive. I think with any in-wall speaker, ideally you'd pair it with a good sub if you can. Yes. But if you couldn't, it's still going to give you pretty damn good performance overall for the price yeah. and the convenience. These look like they probably install between studs <laughs> in a wall. <laughs> That's just yeah. a, that would be a fun project to set up a room like that. They don't look like they'd be emotionally traumatizing to, to install. Um, and if you think that's silly, you need to look at a lot of in-wall speakers and how they set up the configures, right? With these, you, I'm pretty sure they give you a template in the box. You cut out a hole and then you rotate. They have little flippy, grabby clamps that rotate out. So they grab onto your sheetrock. So, oh, there they are. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six on the smaller speaker. And uh, I would imagine quite a few more on the larger speaker. And as exciting as it is to listen to me count in a podcast, and I know it must be awfully exciting because you haven't hung up yet. One, two, three, four, five, six, 12, 12 on the larger speaker. So it's good stuff. Yeah, that uh, it would be interesting to see what those look like, the larger speakers look like, because the specs in this are about three feet high, about 11 inches wide. 3.7 inches deep. So that would actually fit quite nicely in a stud. With a white floating steel grill. 16.5 by 11.1 inches for the smaller. Speaking of talking, uh, Bluetooth LE audio spec has been completed. Now it's back at CES 2020. Uh, Bluetooth LE is officially complete. So it's not, you know, if you're thinking like, wait a minute, LE. No, it's not the Bluetooth lower energy stuff. That's, I think, like a decade old at this point. Probably the biggest change for Bluetooth LE is uh, AuraCast broadcast audio. And the idea is that you can share your local audio or the silent screen or tour systems or assisted listening or multi-language support in an airport. But the idea is that um, you can have lots of people connecting to a single screen or device or system with their Bluetooth headsets. Nice. Um, yeah, the, the example they put, I think, up on the Bluetooth or the Aracast page is like a bunch of people on the treadmills at the gym looking at a screen, and they can all tune in their preferred, you know, if they want to listen to the whatever terrifying television program is on at the gym. Um, I think the public broadcast profile, the the PPV was probably one of the things that took so long to hammer out to finish this spec off. Uh, better support for hearing aids is built into the spec, uh, but really the other big thing after AuraCast is uh, LC3, the Low Complexity Communications Codec. More efficient um, you know, than SBC. One of the quotes on this I think The Verge had was, better quality at half the data rate. And uh, you know, I, I find in, in real-world experience, codec implementations vary by manufacturer. Um, but you should be able to get more bitrate depth on some codecs, or at least more bandwidth, maybe. Uh, whether or not you'll be able to hear anything, we wait. 
with bated breath. I dig that update, though, and I can't wait to see it incorporated into more devices. In particular, yeah. TVs would be really ideal for something like this. Oh, my goodness. Just so if you have a couple people in the living space or in the room who need to wear headphones, maybe for just right. a personal experience, you can have that. Or you can have more than one. And then still... Yes, that's the big one. Yeah. And then, hey, if you're going to give me a codec that's, you know... At least the same quality at, at less data rate or better, as they're quoting. <laughs> what I'm waiting for is the the kids and their hijinks and the silent disco parties where, you know, somebody's oh, going to buy a $25 gadget off of Amazon and everybody will have their Bluetooth headphones on and they will all be listening to the same broadcast from somebody's phone or something. I'm looking forward to that. Kids dancing in public with Bluetooth LE. It'll be fun. Uh, Netflix. We talked about Netflix getting ready to, to uh, Netflix has a panic attack. Stock price drops through the floor. Too many people are sharing. They finally decided to get a crackdown on sharing. So uh, 100 million households, they think, use shared passwords. And there was a big article on Bloomberg uh, that essentially uh, that five countries are going to be paying for additional homes. So the quote from Bloomberg, Netflix incorporated will ask customers in five Latin American countries to pay a fee if they want to use their account in an additional home. And they're hoping it's going to generate additional revenue. Uh, Argentina, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic are the first folks that are going through this trial. Not going to affect uh, smartphones or tablets or laptops, but... Uh, they are trying to crack down on having many, 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 many people sharing the same accounts. Um, the other thing that was funny that came out this week was uh, Matthew Thunell, the Netflix vice president credited with finding Stranger Things. It's a whole Reuters article, right? We want to have our version of Star Wars or our version of Harry Potter. And we're working very hard to build that. But those are not built overnight, uh, which is interesting, right? Because Stranger Things is a pretty big freaking hit for Netflix. But uh, they want to build brands, rights, Reuters that uh, traverse film, television, games, and consumer products. So they want to make more money. I have found yeah. some of their in-house content <laughs> to be some of the best I've seen, but it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that that content is going to stay exclusive to Netflix. Right. Over the long term, Stranger Things may. I think they will hold on to that for as long as possible. But I've seen other content of that was Netflix exclusive. At least it, it originated from them. Uh, get moved on to other platforms, and that always kind of bumps right. me out when I see something like that happens. Unless I'm subscribing to those other providers as well. And they've also had discussions too about bringing that ad tier supported version of Netflix to get the price. 2023. Yeah. And we'll talk about that when it gets a little closer. Actually, <laughs> that's actually in the, <laughs> you're one step ahead. Good, sir. I'm anticipating your needs, sir. Well, okay. So the other thing that they talked about this week was that they didn't lose 2 million subscribers. They only lost about 970,000 subscribers during the second quarter of this year. They had expected to lose like 2 million. Uh, apparently, they also expect to add a million subscribers in Q3, and they've officially, you know, kind of got into discussing the beginnings of the future of the cheaper ad-supported tier that's going to hit in 2023. And the thing I think about is part of the reason, you know, if you're wondering, why are you talking about this? I don't want finance. Remember, if Netflix doesn't make mad cash, they can't bankroll epic content. So... The money is critical to have the content. Maybe not the best content, because I've 
I, yeah, let's not talk about independent <laughs> films. And she, it's just, it's, you know, they've, they have considered, they write, they considerably cut back on a lot of uh, stuff they had planned. Um, you know, you could see a lot of, you know, LA folks, directors and, and producers and, well, mostly directors I'm thinking of that talked about stuff that was not going to happen as a result of Netflix scaling back. Um, if you're an anime fan and you're outside the United States, you might be getting uh, Crunchyroll or have the opportunity to get Crunchyroll for less money. So Sony bought Crunchyroll from AT&T uh, back in 2021. They brought in content from Funimation uh, into Roll Dead into Crunchyroll earlier this year. And uh, crazy, they're, I, I guess they want to grow Crunchyroll and they're going to drop prices in like 100 regions. So cool. The, yeah. You know, here in the United States, the fan mega fan ultimate fan prices are still eight, 10 or $15 a month. Um, but there's a, you can go to a whole list of the countries where they're dropping prices. Chris Holt from Engadget kind of dug into this and it's kind of crazy, right? Uh, you know, India, they'll get uh, a mega fan subscription for 99 rupees, which is like a dollar 25 instead of 10 bucks us per month uh in brazil they're going to drop like 38 percent um united arab emirates they're going to pay half as much so i think sony's looking to create a much larger crunchy roll audience or crunchy roll subscriber base It'd be interesting to see how that works because if that works it may get other folks other services to consider lowering what uh you have to pay for them uh, other news and streaming, uh, Prime is, uh, Amazon's Prime Video is finally rolling out a new look, a new design, uh, Roku, Apple TV, Smart TVs, Fire TV, Android TV, Android devices. If you haven't seen it yet, keep an eye out because they're supposed to be rolling it out over the next two, three weeks. You should, uh, when, you, when the new interface shows up, apparently, uh, nav is over on the left side of the screen. There'll be a vertical column of icons and, uh, a big top 10 list of what's popular is going to be one of the things that dominates the new home screen. So one of my least favorite interfaces to date, and hopefully this new yeah. change makes it a little easier to find what you want or, or mix it up. It is a weird interface. It definitely is. It could use some help and I'm glad they're working on that. Also, we spent a lot of the pandemic discussing who had or did not have subwoofers in stock. Um, SVS pretty much always had subwoofers, Monoprice, Shoe, RSL, uh, availability was on again, off again. Uh, RSL has been selling out, uh, subwoofers left and right. And they just came out with the tennis Mark II. Um, a couple quick things. I finally got to see a review of the tennis Mark II. Uh, this one was up on Audioholics. Um, essentially it's, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't dig as deep as a lot of the, the much larger subwoofers do or much more expensive subwoofers do. Um, but you're looking at pretty solid uh, CEA numbers from about 25 hertz up. These are fantastic audio uh, subwoofers or you know music subwoofers. They're solid for uh, home theater. They had the original price for years and years and years. They raised it up to 449 for the 10s Mark II. And they also added uh, some DSP into the amplification that should allow it to deliver a slightly better performance. Um, I'm going to send you to Audioholics to read the review to get into that because I don't, I don't want to, you know, steal all their thunder. But 
As I'm looking, the pre-sale of their next and largest order of RSL Speedwoofers in the history of RSL speakers. Uh, the pre-sale begins uh, in 23 hours and 26 minutes and 22 seconds as we're recording this. And those are going to start shipping, or and I expect it to begin shipping August 18th. I'll be really curious to see if they finally sell these out. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, this, they're, they're a, a, you know, wire cutters pick for kind of the a fantastic subwoofer um you know they also i think mentioned stuff from shoe and svs there's a lot of good subwoofers out there right now um but i was just i've been fascinated to watch rsl just sell out of all the subwoofers they can bring over so props to them and uh if you've been looking for one and haven't been able to find one two things 10s looks fantastic the you know the new version of it looks fantastic right and uh they'll be pre-taking pre-orders good luck Available in black or white. So beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. Hey, big shout out for our patrons at the $10 and $20 level. We've got our next hangout coming on Thursday, July 28th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, I'm going to be up somewhere near Kirksville, Kirkwood, Kirksville, Kirksville, Ooh. Missouri. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to very carefully plot my internet access for that one. <laughs> Understood. Basically, what we do is we send out invitations to those patrons, and if there's space open, uh, if if our basically if our app isn't filled with their space open, we invite folks in the lower uh, Patreon tiers to join us for the hangout. So keep an eye on your Patreon email feed. If you get email from us, it's because of the hangout. So open it, please. Do it. I want to give a big shout out to some of our longest running patrons going back to October 3rd, 2016, starting with Mark Conrad, Mike, Dave Weaver, Onyx Raven, Mark Sinclair, and Bruce Baker. You have all been patrons of ours since October 3rd and through November 22nd, 2016. We want to thank you for your continued support. We really appreciate it. Indeed. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, patreon.com slash AVXL, our patrons, contribute and make this podcast possible it's basically you pay us some money each month and we do our best to bring you the content you are looking for and if we're not message us on patreon.com slash avxl or email ask at avxl.com we got a funny question from keith i should say we got a funny tweet from keith uh at Keith Foster says, look i wish i could fly hair into charlottesville to calibrate my tv but i'm usually a let me get the best TCL and biggest size for my money kind of guy. Of course, I moved my 65 inch 2018 6 series to my bedroom. However, I would love professional calibration on his new LG. Best Buy had some options in the past. They may still, but uh, when you go to the, T the Best Buy TV calibration uh, link on the Best Buy website, and I mentioned Best Buy because Best Buys are everywhere, right? It says this item is no longer available in new condition. See similar items below which, oh wow uh, kind of cracked me up um geek squad ain't doing the, it anymore no uh, they may be doing it oh. but the, there wasn't an easy way to find it um maybe my best buy.com foo is uh no is I, weak i'm looking at that link that's that's too bad uh one uh, option we've often talked about in terms of trying to find a video calibrator local to you is checking the avs forum webpage. They actually have a section which we'll link to in the show notes where all trained calibrators are encouraged to actually post their information there and they can disseminate who's where and who you can call and get in touch with 
to get someone to come out to your place and take care of you. If you're in any way DIY in terms of doing this, there are some products out there that you could take a look at. And in particular, something like the uh, Spider products from Datacolor. They have a product called the Spider X Pro or a Spider X Elite, but the Pro is at a really good price, sub well below $200. I think it's like about $170 for this kit. That includes a colorimeter. You would need a computer or a laptop to plug this into in order to run it. But you could do a good basic calibration using a tool like that in terms of getting, in particular, right. the white balance dialed in, your shade of gray, and getting that to the appropriate, quote-unquote, D65 color spec. That will help color accuracy overall. For certain TVs, though, in particular, like the latest LG projectors and OLEDs and LCDs, they do feature a method of actually directly programming the lookup tables of these devices. And that requires some pretty high-end software from the likes of, say, uh, Portrait Displays Calman and the appropriate mm -hmm. meters to get that done. But for a what they call a two-point calibration, where you're, you're measuring the bright grays and the darker grays, uh, and then making sure those are effectively the same color, that goes a long way on any TV toward getting it right. dialed in nicely, uh, specifically for color. And that is clearly the most important thing. And for a product that costs about $170 plus a little time on your end, that would be one way to do it if you absolutely cannot find a local calibrator or somebody willing to come out at a price you're willing to pay. That's something I would consider. That's also something you could share with your friends. Uh, once you have a piece of hardware like that, it would work just fine. And if you're dealing with certain projectors, I'm thinking of JVC in particular, and their calibration software for their devices, they actually require something like the Spider-X Pro or the Spider-X Elite. The Elite incorporates more color options in terms of different white points. I don't think that's necessary for most people when they're calibrating a regular TV. Uh, in fact, it's overkill. So I would stick with that Pro model, right. save the money, do it yourself. The key is having some sort of a source device that is controllable in some way. AVS Forum, actually, we were just talking about them. They have a disk you can download and burn <laughs> if you want to go to that trouble. And that will create the necessary test patterns for that, say, bright gray and dark gray pattern that you need to measure and make the adjustments with. I would really like to try out that new Spider-X Pro. I think that would be a good way to do it. That's how I would go about it personally. I would just take the time to learn a two-point calibration and get that done on your favorite TV. That mm -hmm. method using a product like that Spider that's easily available online is going to outperform you know, doing it by eye or trying to do it with a cell phone app or any other way. Short of getting a hold of a Pro Calibrator with really high-end equipment, that's a terrific way just to get it done yourself. There you have it. Otherwise, feel free to contact me directly. Uh, <laughs> and if you're willing to fly me anywhere, I have, I've traveled out of state many a time to get jobs done. And it's not cheap, but heck, I'm willing to be flexible at least. If you're looking to do this on the cheap, and like if you have an affordable TV and you're not willing to spend, you know, hundreds of dollars to have a pro come out and do it, uh, I think something like Datacolor Spider Products are a good way to go with a little bit of training on your end. It's not that difficult to get good results out of it. And it's kind of fun, fun to do. And once you do one, you like you'll fun. be way more comfortable uh, doing another. And as we mentioned before, if you screw anything up, quote unquote, it doesn't look <laughs> right. You find that reset button in the picture controls and you just hit that and you go right back to the way it was. 
but don't fear those kind of products. It's really not as difficult as you might think it is. And you could also apply this technology too to something like your PC display or a notebook display and get that dialed in as well. Probably even more so uh, than you can with base TV calibrations. But either way, if you can't find a pro to come out and visit you, yeah, I'd go with a, an affordable piece of calibration gear that you can use yourself over and over on different products or share it amongst your friends and split the cost, something like that. Speaking of professional calibration, one of the things you read a lot or you run into online is that people say when you buy a traditional projector, you should wait anywhere from 50 to 100. Some people claim even 200 hours before you have that projector calibrated because there are some significant changes that occur to the light that is outputted by the bulb in a lot of projectors in the earliest hours, you know, the first couple hundred hours, right, or first hundred hours, 50 hours. This is not the mythical changes that people talk about. Well, my speakers broke in and now they sound perfect. Well, your speakers break in uh, within about a tenth of a second after you first play music through ah. it. Um, you know, it, it, well, it's it. We've talked about it. I'm not gonna. Oh no, I, I, I just agree no with no. I'm just said. I'm just I'm just laughing. I was just I was thinking about something I read recently, and I was like, it's just too late in the day to start ranting. Um, True in that. any case. Jake, uh, he's got a projector in his home theater. He decided to get a projector because he wanted a big television, but he couldn't actually get a 77 or 83-inch television around physically around the corner at the bottom of his stairs. He couldn't get him like around the railing on a back deck. It was it was a real physical challenge. So a projector, he'd just carry right in there. And I also, like you said, the 77 might have fit if I took it out of its box at an extreme angle over the railing of the deck. I applaud you, Jake, in not risking because even even you know Amazon and and uh, Amazon and Costco get a little you know quizzical when you bring them a shattered, heavily dropped television. Oh, yes, I, I don't think that would go well. So uh, you know, a screen and a projector fit easily. Got a Hisense L5G100 Cine because uh, the 120 inch screen wouldn't fit on his wall. He seems super happy with that. You know, he spent some change on it. It's a nice projector. He wants it to look his best. He says, how long should I wait in terms of hours of burn time before I hire a professional to tune it to look its best? I think this is a great question, right? Because lasers are not light bulbs. Um, True that. <laughs> and light bulb is oversimplifying the, the you know, the the lamp module that goes inside a projector. But essentially, you know, when we think about projectors, the reason you replace projector bulbs is either because A, it exploded inside your projector, uh, or B, because it has become so dim it is no longer functioning at anything. You know, o over time, a projector bulb emits less light and your image gets darker. What happens with lasers? Uh, you can calibrate them almost immediately. You're not dealing with the change you would see, say, as we mentioned, with lamp modules in particular and the way the lamps are designed, when you first install one, a brand new lamp module, you will typically see that it has extra blue light. It takes 50 or more hours before that kind of tones down and gets into that sweet spot of where it stays consistent. I think for most people, I would not calibrate any display really within, if it's brand new, within the first, say, 30 days. Mm -hmm. Make sure that device is the one you are going to keep. There's nothing wrong with it. It functions great. That month typically will get you past that 50-hour mark for a lamp module. But in the case right. of a laser, uh, it, again, I would still wait that at least a month, not because the image is going to change, but just to make sure 
especially if you're paying someone to do this, that that product is going to stay. You're not going to have to exchange it. Or if you do, you get it done in that first 30 days where it's the least cost right. of exchanging it. Make sure everything's right and then go ahead and do it. But for in terms of the light technology itself, if it's a laser or an LED-based display uh, in terms of that light source uh, for a projector, you typically can do it as soon as it comes right out of the box. There is no waiting on that at all. They change so much less over time for both LED and laser that you're not doing that wait period for that extra bit of blue in a regular lamp module to kind of go away before you then dive into it. Right. I mean, when you look at, at lamp specs for traditional projectors, you often see, depending on the category of projector, how bright it is, you, you'll often be told that the average life expectancy for a projector bulb is 2,000 hours in bright mode, 3,000 hours in normal mode, maybe 4,000 hours. I had one that went almost 5,000 hours, but that was uh, a room where the lighting was especially controlled. And it was shocking how much brighter that projector was once I swapped a new bulb in there. When you're looking at a projection, a light source for a projector, a laser that's going to last 20,000 hours, that means you know the brightness decays in a much smaller way over a much longer period of time. And the color of that light doesn't change much. It is not like you deal with the lamp modules that have that blue right. hue to them when they're brand new. And that slowly, it just, that edge comes off rather quickly within, you know, like we said, about 50 hours tops usually. And again, for me personally, if you're paying someone to calibrate a display, I don't care what kind of display it is. I would always wait that 30 days just to make sure that, you know, you're not <laughs> calibrating something that you're eventually going to replace uh, or swap out for some reason. Maybe it's uh, malfunctioning or it's just not exactly what you want in terms of saving the money. But yeah, that's one of the beauties of not only laser projectors, pure laser projectors, but also LED-based projectors as well. They are very consistent light sources that last a good long time. You technically don't have to wait if you want to get them dialed right in. You get them done and they stay that way a lot longer. Yeah. Or at least there's no wait time before you do it. One quick thought before I go as I'm uh, briskly bouncing through Epson's FAQs. Uh, remember, if you are replacing a lamp and a projector, let it cool down for at least an hour before you get in there so you do not burn yourself or cause a, uh, a shattering lamp inside your projector. Having a, a lamp explode inside your projector may not kill you or hurt you or hurt it more likely. Kill, I shouldn't say that. You know, it, it will not necessarily damage your projector if the bulb shatters or breaks. Uh, but it will scare the hell out of you and it can cause injury. So do yourself a favor, wait for at least an hour after you shut the projector down before you replace a bulb. And while I'm mentioning that, if you have a particularly important premiere or sporting event like the Super Bowl or a particular World Series game, always order a projection bulb and have one ready in advance. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> If you are replacing a lamp module in a projector, I'd say number one is always wear gloves. If that lamp yeah. module comes with a pair of white, like cloth style gloves or even some nitrile gloves or something, you do not want to touch the glass or get any kind of oils from your fingers on that that create hot spots that could possibly shorten, dramatically Shatter. shorten the life of yeah. that lamp module. And that's something to keep in mind. And also take a good look at that lamp module to make sure that maybe during the factory packaging or whatever, somebody actually did physically touch it and there's a big smudge right. on there or something. Give it a quick glance before you do install it. Yeah, there's uh, 
few things in well actually there's a lot of things in life more painful but nobody wants to spend 250 300 for a replacement bulb and then turn around and spend 250 or 300 for a replacement bulb uh several minutes after they put the new the last new bulb in there totally and if you're being such a uh, careful owner to actually replace that lamp module you may as well also take a look at the cooling system on the projector as well in particular the filters and vents make sure those are dusted out nothing kills things faster uh, as far as electronics devices go than heat the less heat it has to suffer the better it's going to be and that applies to a lot of things but yeah, keep it cool, as cool as possible for these <laughs> oh-so-bright, no-so-hot devices. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we uh, we got a couple things to talk about next week. Uh, shout out to our friend Scott Wilkinson, uh, ABS Forum. He's been doing some videos, which you can find on absforum.com or oh, on ABS Forum's cool. YouTube channel. Yeah, he just interviewed... Uh, just interviewed one of our favorite speaker designers, Andrew Johnson, who is now over at MoFi. So that's a good one. And uh, right before that, uh, he did uh, an AVS Forum Tech Talk uh, with Paul Barton on the 50th anniversary of uh, PSB speakers, um, which if you uh, PSB speakers is kind of on the short list where if you find them uh, on Craigslist or at a yard sale, they're probably worth buying. Um. <laughs> Scott's one of my favorite MCs for either, you know, uh, yeah. panel discussions or interviews or anything like that. He's knowledgeable. The people he tends yeah. to corral are knowledgeable and it tends to be good times for all. He's a nice guy too. That uh, so a shout fact. out to Sear P for the link to that one. Oh, so, cool. Good stuff. Anything exciting you're watching that you want to share? Or? What am I looking at lately? Uh, what are you watching, man? Hmm. <laughs> I am looking for a new game to play. I talked about Cyberpunk Ooh. 2077 a couple of weeks ago. I have to say that it just turned out to be one of my absolute favorite games. I was right at the end sequence of that game, and it had one of the best endings in terms of choose-your-own-adventure style that I have experienced mm. in quite a while. And I'm glad I waited till it had all of the patches applied and things like that. Uh, it made for a more seamless experience. It's not perfect. There are a couple glitches here and there, but... And man, if you've got the hardware to run that game or you're running it on a modern console, it's visually stunning. And I found it just utterly fascinating for the choices you make, the, the game styles you like to play. It's really kind of up to you in terms of how that rolls. And I'm looking for something else. Actually, I just saw that an update came out for No Man's Sky. I may actually give that a look. That's been sitting in my library for a while and I haven't really dug into it much. You should try Stray. Ooh, have you heard I about saw Stray? That. Yeah, I've seen that. The game, Cyberpunk actually. Cat game on <laughs> PC and PlayStation. It's getting a lot of buzz. A lot of buzz. I believe you play as a cat. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Actually, I actually should probably take a look at that. I'm also trying to find some just titles that me and my friends can play together. And that yeah, kind of, that kind of thing. Stick fight. <laughs> have to st yes. Have you played Stick Fight? It's terrifying. No, it's awesome. I did dip my toe into a game called Raft, though, which is, I think, uh, an interesting title. That basically, it's like a survival uh, crafting game in a sense, where you're basically on a raft floating in the ocean, and you're picking out garbage in the ocean to try to build up your your raft. <laughs> <laughs> avoiding the sharks, looking for food, and trying to make water. 
And the funniest part for me is that it is really easy in this game to accidentally drink seawater and it really messes you up. So, oh, man. And it can, I think you can play with up to four people together. And it's just kind of an interesting, if you like the, the crafting side of games and a little bit of uh, uh, collaboration with your buddies, you can play the single player as well. Uh, Raft is one to check out. And I think it's on sale in the Steam, the Steam sale currently going on as well. That could be an interesting game to play with maybe uh, children and parents or or just your buddies if you're into that sort of a of a game. It seemed like at first glance it would be a little more relaxing. It's like, oh, I'm just floating on a raft and blah, blah, blah. But no, it turns out like, man, I got to find food. I need to be able to fish. I need to dodge <laughs> the sharks. I need to make fresh water or find fresh water. Or <laughs> So there's a there's a, a bit of a learning curve right at the very beginning, but you can quickly get past that and get into it. But anyway, that's one that I, I would consider again if you're not if you're not down with the whole cyberpunk thing, which I have to say that is just that game turned out to be just amazing for me. But yeah, between Stray and Raft and <laughs> maybe there's a few others. I don't think I don't think Stray has a a group uh, a, a group gaming option, but being a pack of cats in a video, in a cyberpunk video game would be hysterical. I might have to um, give that a shot. I'm really tempted to buy it. If you got a question for us or a game suggestion for Robert or for me for that matter, just favorite tweet at Robert Heron at Powder Dorton or if you like at AVXL on the Twitters. As always, email is the easiest way to get us directly. Ask at avxl.com. Or if you're a patron, message us on patreon.com slash avxl. One last shout out to all of our patrons. You make this possible. And hey, we got that hangout coming up on Thursday the 28th. And uh, more information coming to you on patreon.com slash avxl. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on ABXL.